I just want to take a moment to appreciate as well how many conscientious like sons and daughters must be because we are missing a few today so my guess is that we have quite a lot of people who've taken their mums out for lunch today which we're going to we're going to commend them for but we're going to continue um those of us who are here um with our series walking barefoot which is a series as i mentioned that helena kicked off for us some weeks ago now where essentially as we've moved into this new year we felt like the lord was speaking to us about the importance of the discipling narrative of lives laid down walking barefoot is an image that appears in the scriptures uh, that, that is gathered around worship, surrender, and taking off the things that pull us back. It's a picture of surrender to his lordship. And it is a direct contrast to a consumeristic religion that makes us the centre of our world and asks Jesus to come and give us a slightly more comfortable life. Rather, it's the abandonment into Jesus, you are my lord, and we will lay down everything for you. Author Jim Packer wrote these challenging words. Does the world around us seek profit, pleasure and privilege? So, he says, critically, do we. We have no readiness or strength to renounce these objectives for we have recast Christianity into a mould that stresses happiness above holiness, blessings here above blessings hereafter, health and wealth as God's best gifts and death, especially early death, not as thankworthy deliverance from the miseries of a sinful world, but as the supreme disaster. Is our Christianity out of shape? Yes, it is. And the basic reason is that we have lost the New Testament's two-world perspective that views the next life as more important than this one and understands life here is essentially preparation and training for life hereafter. Ouch, and welcome to church on Sunday. Last week, we looked at the whole area of singleness. And as we just began to look at our relationships in the church, we said that actually too often have we adopted a worldly mentality of singleness as somehow being lesser, whereas Paul in the scriptures speaks about it as a holy vocation of beautiful surrender to the Lord. We, speak, we looked at it as Paul's ideal scenario, a gift or a vocation that some have and permitting undivided devotion to the Lord. And today we're going to move on to part two of this teaching, which had we had great stamina last week, we might have launched on with part two then. But I think actually it was wise that we didn't um, to look at marriage. And to say, well, within this narrative and within this conversation about living lives that are laid down for Jesus, how therefore do we do marriage well? What does that look like? And how does the Bible's narrative around marriage look so totally different from all the things that we hear about it in our culture? So a quick look at our secular world. Firstly, last week, we had a look at three images which maybe speak about how relationships are often viewed in our culture. These images will be up on the screen. We looked at the swipe right, or so we believe, um, world of relationships where sex is viewed as a commodity to be gained for the gratification of self as easily as downloading an app on your phone. That we have moved into a world where sex is at our fingertips for the gratification of self. We looked at the Saturday night rom-com, um, of which there are so many, 
and we all have our favourites, but ultimately can give the narrative that romance and walking down the aisle with Etta James playing in the background, etc., etc., can be the source of our ultimate happiness and fulfilment, can give the idea of there is a deficiency and an unhappiness about life until we make that perfect move into marriage. We looked at suburbia, at the what we said, what your mum wants to happen, the kind of married with three children in a semi-detached house, but ultimately that gives a vision for marriage that is introspective and about becoming more and more siloed into our own inward-looking existence rather than furthering the mission of Jesus in all he calls us to be together. Let's look a little bit closer at some of the stats around marriage. Um, firstly, we can immediately say that there's been a massive decrease in people getting married. Since 1972, 75% decrease for men getting married and 69% for women. The average age at marriage has, generally speaking, gone up. Men are now, on average, 38 years old at marriage, women 35. Divorce statistics have actually fallen a little, but that's largely to do with the fact that a lot less people are getting married in the first place. Now, 35% of marriages are expected to end in divorce. In our nation, there are 8.2 million people living alone, which is a 20% increase in 20 years. There are 2.9 million single parents. 86% of which are women, although that's gradually changing as the years go on. There's a 40% increase in same-sex couples in the four-year period between 2015 and 2019. Radical change in a short amount of time. Over 48% of children are now born outside of marriage. Sex is seen now far more as part of the research and experimentation spell before marriage, with only 5% of people thinking that premarital sex was wrong. That's in a study done in 2003, which is nearly 20 years ago. We wonder what that, might, what that number might be now. In the same survey, incidentally, only 84% of men and 89% of women considered extramarital sex always to be wrong. That means 16% of men and 11% of women thought that in some circumstances it would be okay. When we look at young people, we see a huge shift in terms of how sex, sexuality, their bodies and their identity is understood. Young people are sexually active much earlier than they were a generation or two ago. People are hugely affected by the widespread availability of pornography and the the view of the body, self-value, what sex should look like, consent, expectations and all those things so present in that. In 2012, 31% of boys and 29% of girls had had sex before the age of 16. And if you speak with people who do pastoral work in secondary schools, they will tell you that a huge amount of their pastoral work is in the areas of young people desperately trying to understand what is sex? How do relationships work? Who am I? Within the myriad of ideas out there and the so confusing world of everything that they're seeing online, there are huge changes in understanding of sexuality. According to an Office of National Statistics study published in 2020, 22.5% of, 60, uh, of 16 to 24-year-old men identify as gay or bisexual, and th- over 30% of women as lesbian or bisexual. We are essentially in a moment 
of absolutely rapid change around how people understand sex, marriage, relationships, and all the ideas of who we are as attached to this. We can look at TV as well, right? Um, any fans of Love Island out there? You, yes, yeah, some hands went up a little too quickly. You know what I'm saying? A rather more highbrow take on Love Island, on Radio 4's analysis programme, which devoted a whole show to it, talked about how Love Island dramatises love as a marketplace and really sort of analysing how the relationships shown on Love Island sort of imitate and give a sort of a very clear idea of how people view sex and relationships now. Marriage is not now seen as the beginning of a long exploration of commitment, but rather as a possible end of a long period of research and experimentation. One of the quotes from that programme was that sex is now seen as self-fulfillment. Self-fulfillment. Sex, marriage, about me. Finally, on my cultural analysis, I was encouraged to do my research and watch Married at First Sight Australia as part of understanding the marital and relational norms. Thank you to those who put me through that painful scenario. Are there any, uh, without any shame, any fans of the show in the room? No, similar set of hands going up. We'll pray for you guys later. I watched season one, episode one of Married at First Sight Australia, and in it, Jonathan and Cheryl, who will appear on screen, um, make their clearly not very legally binding vows at the altar at the beginning of the show. And um, Jonathan has interviewed before um, this, and he says, the most important person in my life is me. It's me. And you just thought, this one is doomed to failure. <laughs> For that and a variety of other reasons. We're in a moment where we look across our society, we look across our world, we look across our media, we look across our apps, we look across our TV shows and our movies. We look at how our friends and colleagues behave and speak about this. And we see that so much of the vision around marriage and relationships has just changed at a disorientating pace. In many ways, what's happened is that so much of the conversation is now about me. How would marriage or sex serve me, my well-being, my comfort, my self-fulfillment? Into this comes a radically distinct narrative in the Bible that we're going to spend some time on today. I'm going to give us a phrase that we'll come back to later just to get us started on the vision of biblical marriage. Biblical marriage means walking barefoot serving the empowerment, glorification, healing and unleashing of your spouse, that they may joyfully play their part in the purposes of God. Turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 5, if you have your Bibles open. The sheer lack of rustling in the room suggests that many of us are flicking on our phones or are well used to the fact that it's going to be on the screen anyway. I do encourage you to bring your Bibles, I'm going to say again, because it's just great to build that familiarity and confidence with your version of the scripture. So do bring it along on Sunday. We're going to go from Ephesians 5 from verse 21. Paul writes these words. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless." In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, he says, quoting Genesis. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, Each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Be so fun to mic drop there and leave us all to chill on it. Because if we're honest, when we read this, so many of us have heard those words in passing or read those words on the screen and get really uncomfortable, right? And we get a bit awkward and wondering what the heck is the pastor going to say about this one this time? And our concern towards this passage often comes from the fact that we we read it from a worldly paradigm. We read it from an assumption that these words can be used abusively or manipulatively. We read it thinking, we imagine abusive husbands saying to the wife, you must submit to me more today, enforcing a squashed identity in a coercive, controlling, abusive environment. We need to, however, move this out of a worldly paradigm where we're too used to abusive paradigms of control and move it into a kingdom narrative. Because when we start to look at this through the lens of how the kingdom actually works and how honour and empowerment and love and respect and mutuality actually work in the kingdom, we find in here a radical vision that is stunning and beautiful and powerfully prophetic in our moment. We're going to have a quick look at another passage, which just gives us a little bit of a framework for this. It's in Luke chapter 14. So if you've got your Bible open or your phone on or want to look at the screen, all our uh, viable options, we're just going to flick briefly to Luke chapter 14 as Jesus just gives something of this thing of how honour works in the kingdom. And he tells a story to them in Luke chapter 14 from verse 7. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited. He's at a banquet. And when he noticed how they chose the places of honour, i.e. the best seats at the table, he said to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honour, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But... When you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when the host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honoured in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Often we read parables like this, and we think it's something to do with getting to heaven, right, and having a nice seat at the table when we get there. Actually, Jesus was so often more interested in not just illustrating the eternal culture of heaven, but the culture of heaven that we are meant to be living in now. And he's giving us an idea within this about how honour works in the kingdom, 
that honour is not taken in the kingdom, but honour is given. That the question for the disciple of Jesus is not about how high can I get, but how low can I go. It's not about what position can I take, but it's about how much can I lay myself down for the benefit of others. Honour in the kingdom is always something beautifully, willingly offered towards another person. When we start this passage in Ephesians chapter 5, we find these formative framing words for the whole thing. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Each one of you, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters in this room, everyone have a posture of how low can I go for the benefit, beautification and empowerment of those around me? How low can I go? Honour in the kingdom is always, always given. It is never taken. We're going to come back to that idea a bit later. But firstly, I want to have a look at husbands. Um, Because I think this is the part where probably we've often misunderstood this passage the most. So I want to just frame what I understand Paul to be saying here before we move on to then looking at those words that we find more difficult. Let's have a look at those words. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Husbands, love your wives, Paul says. Sounds so easy. But then he goes on, how do we do that? In the same way that Jesus loved the church. Husbands love your wives, Paul says, by laying down everything for her. By laying down your rights, by laying down your privileges, by letting yourself be crucified day by day that she may be beautified and released and empowered and sent into all that God called her to be, that she may be radiant and holy and good. Husbands, when we read these words, we need to realise that before we even think about anything the passage says about submission, it tells us, husbands, you lay down your wives. Your your wives. (laughs) I knew I was going to say that at some point today. I knew I was. You lay down your lives. Because actually... When you come into this relationship, you do not come into it with a narrative of the world of what's in this for me, but you come into this relationship with a vision of what can this woman become through you laying down your life that she may be beautified, sent, glorified, and all that God created her to be. When Jesus died for each one of us, he died to reconcile us to the Father. He laid down everything that we could become whole again. He laid down everything that we could be released again in the vocation that God has put upon our lives, that we could be reconnected to the identity that he has inscribed for us. When Jesus laid down his life for us, he gave us an image of what husbands are meant to do every day for our wives. Lay down everything because the woman you are married to is full of redemptive purpose. The father sees it in her and so should you. Your role every day is to ask the question of how can I serve her best ends? Not what does she give to me? Not how does she serve the advancement of my career? Not how does she serve my domestic pleasures. Not how does she gratify me sexually, not how does she stay looking exactly the same as she did on our wedding day, but how can I release this person to the best of all that she can be because husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her 
giving us an example of what marriage could look like. Walter Brueggemann, in his book, Living Towards a Vision, wrote, love means to empower, to cause to be fully. Love means to empower, to cause to be fully. Love in a marriage relationship is that, empowerment, causing the fullness of being, releasing into all this extraordinary person can possibly be. Husbands, we're called to have a vision for our wives. And our question is always going to be, how can I serve that end today? And it's going to look like our lives laid down. This is a massive inversion, is it not, of the way of our culture. Our culture which tells us, make it about yourself. Jonathan on Married at First Sight Australia, the most important person in my life is me. He's not going to get on well with this. But it's such a distinct and beautiful vision about what marriage could look like. Barclay and Alvira Mickelson wrote these words. As Christ is the enabler or the one who brings to completion of the church, so the husband is to enable or bring to completion all that his wife is meant to be. The husband is to nourish and cherish his wife as he does his own body, even as Christ nourishes and cherishes the church, referring to verse 29 of this passage. The concept of sacrificial self-giving so that a spouse can achieve full potential has been the role that society has traditionally given to the wife. But get this, here Paul gives it to the husband. So husbands, our question is to be, what are our wives being called to become? What has Jesus spoken about who this woman you are married to or guys may be married to one day? What has he inscribed over their lives? We then ask the question, how daily can I lay down my life to release this into being? Currently, all the women in the room are really enjoying this talk, right? All the guys in the room are like, oh my word, come on now. We're going to get to wives now. So let's have a little look at how this works because actually the paradigm of the honour the paradigm of honour and submission in the kingdom is absolutely mutual. It's absolutely mutual. The word that we find difficult in this passage, if we're honest, right, is wives submit yourselves to your own husbands, right? Is it just me? That's the, that's the line which I've spent most time on when I've studied and prayed about this passage. Lord, this is the one I need to understand. It bounces immediately off the preceding verse, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Actually, in the Greek, which this is written in, it doesn't even have the word submit for wives. It just says submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Wives, to your own husbands, as you do to the Lord. Just do what I've just said. In the context of everyone is submitting and laying down their lives to everyone, wives, you do that in continuance to your husband. There is a crucial idea that mutual submission is the context for how this works in a marriage. This is not giving permission for dominance. This is not allowing one to be controlling or coercive. But this is a saying in a context of mutual honour. Wives, you also are to create a culture of honour within which your husband may thrive. Now, why does he say this? I think for our moment, one thing we have to say is that Paul writes these words into a world of hugely broken masculinity, where actually a lot of guys are roaring like lions on the outside, but on the inside, we have no idea who we are and are broken. 
and have a broken sense of identity. And often the things we see coming out on the outside are a sense of rootlessness and uncertainty about what it is to be a truly good and courageous and creative and empowering man. I think we look across our society and we look at ourselves and we see that so often as guys we end up hiding in our man sheds or on our Xboxes or at the football where actually the Lord is wanting to call us into something more radical. Incidentally, I like football, I like Xboxes and I love a man shed. But But something, there's something isn't there that's too often masculinity has hidden in our culture and has stepped back from responsibility. Paul says wives... Create a culture in your home, create a context in your home where your husband is daily empowered by you, where you give him, you give him willing empowerment, you honour and respect his wisdom, you see what is in him and you call it out. You don't nag and criticise or humiliate him, but you encourage him. You recognise what he is and what you see on the inside and you create a culture where you call that into being every single day where you say, I want this man to grow into the courageous, courageous, creative and powerful man of God that he was made to be. Wives, lay yourselves down that he may be built up and move into all that God has for him, even, even when he's acting like a total idiot, which can happen. I love that line in The Lion King, the, uh, the, the you know, depths of which we could um, unpick for days, I'm sure, where uh, Nala is singing in Can You Feel the Love Tonight? And she sings, why won't he be the king? I know he is the king I see inside. Wives, see, see the king inside your husband. See who he is. Call that into being him. Call that into being. What would he be if you were truly flourishing? How can you deeply value his wisdom? How can you listen deeply to his thoughts? How can you release, empower and bless him into all that God has created him to be? And so we conclude these words of Paul in verse 33, where Paul sort of lands this passage. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Husbands, Love your wife, laying down everything, everything for her. Because an unloved wife will atrophy, whereas a loved wife will radically change the world. Your love, your seeing in her who she is, will set her loose into God's vision for her. It is the the place from which she is launched into all that God has inscribed in her life. And wise, respect your husband by empowering them, by calling them back up to what God created them to be. When they are hiding and wanting to withdraw and step back, reminding them what you see in them, the king you see inside. An unrespected husband will hide and often behind pretty dysfunctional emotions, whereas a respected husband will stand in his God-given strength and purpose. Richard Foster writes, Fidelity means an enduring commitment to the well-being and growth of each other. We commit ourselves to our partner's wholeness and happiness. We desire that every gift, every talent, every ability to be given every opportunity to blossom and flower. Husband and wife are each called to sacrifice for the advancement of the other. Briefly, before we bring these things to conclusion, we need to be really careful in this passage that we pay attention to who Paul is talking to. 
Because the worst thing that can happen when we read this passage and apply it to marriage is a husband can go home saying, wait a minute, didn't that passage say that the wife should submit to me? I'd like a little more submission, please, this week. I'd like a little bit more of your laying down your life to build me up in courage. And the, and the wife can say, wait a minute, doesn't it say the husband should be crucifying himself for my well-being and beautification? But the thing is, Paul is really intentional. He's really intentional about who he's talking to. And he addresses them personally. He says, husbands, he says, husbands, I'm talking to you now. You lay down your wives. You love your wife as Christ loved the church. Your job, husbands, is not to ask what is she giving me, but is to ask what can I give for her. Wives, your question is the same. Not what is he sowing into my life to beautify and glorify and present me radiant and spotless without wrinkle or blemish and all of it, but rather how can I surrender my whole being to him that he may be built up blessed encouraged and released into all that God has for him honor in the kingdom is given it is not taken that's how it works marriage essentially means both husband and wife choose to walk barefoot lives laid down with an extraordinary vision of what God is shaping in the other and devoting themselves every day to how can I set that loose in that person return to our phrase, biblical marriage means walking barefoot, serving the empowerment, glorification, healing and unleashing of your spouse that they may joyfully play their part in the purposes of God. Before we close, this is a couple of things I want to touch on because they, they sit very close in this conversation and it's important that we name them for a variety of reasons. I want to mention divorce and I want to mention sexuality and gender. Firstly, let's have a look at divorce, because this has been a really deeply contentious and painful issue in the church for so many people, and for so many who've been quick to find a cheap and legalistic line on something which is deep and painful. We need to remember in this that Jesus was huge on the radical commitment of marriage. He didn't shy away from that. He named it. He really named it. But we also need to be aware that Jesus was speaking into a context where a husband could flippantly dismiss his wife if he simply didn't like what, how she behaved on a given day. Now, as a pastor and as a human, I have never known anyone flippantly divorce anyone. And anyone who I have journeyed through divorce with has found it to be a deeply and brutally painful experience. In the complexities of a broken world, we need to meet this question with immense grace and recognition that God is always working for the healing and reconcil reconciliation of a situation. If that cannot happen in the marriage, he will lead a person towards wholeness, sometimes out of the marriage. We need deep grace in this conversation, deep grace in something which is deeply complex. But also anyone who's been through a divorce will be the first to tell you that it is not an ideal scenario to be in. They will tell you they have experienced it as all the pain of sin and brokenness, sin in inverted commas. But you see, the thing is, sin is not the same thing as condemnation. They are completely different in the scriptures. When the crowds want to throw rocks at a woman caught in adultery, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. When the world has rejected the woman of the well in Samaria in John 4, Jesus restores her and sends her as an apostle to her community. 
The church too easily becomes a clique of finger-pointing Pharisees rather than engaging in the visionary and healing and restoring gracious work of God. We need to be a deeply compassionate people in situations where a relationship has become abusive and deeply destructive, whilst at the same time holding commitment in marriage as a holy ideal. We carry these both together, which is how we journey with each other towards wholeness. Everyone okay? Everyone's okay. Good. And I wanted to name a word on sexuality and gender because a number of you guys have been in contact with me recently about this. And I just wanted to say that I really appreciate that. I really appreciate that. I think the, uh, pretty much the worst thing we can do in a conversation about sexuality and gender is not have a conversation about sexuality and gender. This is not a taboo subject in our community, but this is something which we need to speak about and journey together. Some of us, I believe, in our community have probably not felt safe enough yet to name your own journey within this, or whether that's a theological journey or a personal journey of orientation or gender dysphoria. We really deeply hope that changes because the family of God moves forward in openness, honesty and truth. What I want to say at the moment, this, this really needs a whole teaching and probably many teachings on this but what I want to say to you guys at the moment is this the leadership of Anchor are very deeply and prayerfully looking at this specific question we're particularly processing this as a core leadership team and as pastoral leadership in the church we're looking at the best teaching we can find on both sides of the arguments and we're listening deeply as we possibly can to the experience of LGBT plus family members, friends and members of our community who, let's face it, haven't always found church a warm and fuzzy place to be. We're looking to walk barefoot with this as well as we would in anything else. We're trusting that the good father has wisdom for us that is deeper and better news than harsh theological pronouncements on the one side or dismissive and superior approach to the scriptures on the other. And it has open ears to both historic and global Christianity. We're looking to be surrendered in this, to seek the will of Jesus and not just to move with the motions of our culture, but to lay down our lives and say, Lord, what is your word to us in courageous holiness and outrageous compassion in our cultural moment? We're not looking primarily to be a church of theory or rules, but to inhabit the heart of a loving father. As your pastor, what I want to say to you guys is I'm so open <laughs> to you to talk to me about this. And I love that some of you have had the guts already to do so. The, uh, the, like I said, the worst thing that could happen is this becomes a taboo thing in our community. Come on a journey with us. Talk to me. You guys have wisdom. You guys have stories. You guys will be looking at this and the scriptures in ways that we haven't been able to yet. Come on the journey with us. This is open and it's on the table. So bring it. Let's see where the Lord takes us. We do it prayerfully and we do it all, Lord Jesus, under your wisdom. <laughs> because it's his church, right? <laughs> and so we look to him. Okay. Everyone still okay? Okay. We're about ready to finish. We've looked in these past couple of weeks at singleness and marriage. We've gone deep, right? 
I felt, I felt the emotional depth of this as I prayed. I felt the emotional depth of this as I've spoken today. This goes into places for us that often are raw and deep and personal and real. But within all of it, the narrative is the same. Is Lord, how can we lay our lives down more for your glory? How can our lives be more about laying everything of us down that you be exalted? How can our singleness be devoted unto the Lord? How can our thought life be devoted unto the Lord? And how can our marriage be about lives laid down that the other may be lifted up and the name of Jesus be primarily exalted? Shall we stand together? Let me get the worship team back up. And let's just take a moment and we're just going to pray. And we're going to just in this moment, we're all just going to gather our hearts and our thoughts back to the Lordship of Jesus. And I want us to remember just in this moment as we started out the series and Hal's reminded us in terms of the foundational ideas here, that we do all of this, all of these conversations before a father who is so good. He's so good when it's really hard. He's so good when we don't know what we're doing. He's so good in the moment where singleness feels like an exciting vocation and he's so good in a place where singleness feels like the deepest burden and grief that we bear. He's so good as the definer of what marriage can be. And when it's amazing and intimate and joyful and good, and he's so good to us, always working for our good, even when things feel so hard. His goodness is at the centre of the conversations about divorce and about sexuality and about gender. His goodness is the, the formative paradigm within which everything that we do and everything that we are happens. And so we just settle our eyes restedly upon the good, good, kind, visionary, awesome face of Jesus. And as we do so, we're just asking, Lord, is there anything you need me to lay down before you today? Am I taking the highest seat? Have I made life or marriage or singleness about me? Well, Lord, it is our joy to make all of it about you. I want you guys just to be aware of what's knocking around your head now. What are you left with after we've shared and met today? And I just invite you just to bring that thing to him and lay it down as if on an altar before him saying, Lord Jesus, we trust you with this and what you want to make of this. Piece by piece, just bring them in your heart and in your prayers and lay them down before him. We trust them with his wounded hands to hold 